If you're a first-time visitor or guest with us here today, my name is Zach Reno, and I'm the senior pastor here at Enon Baptist Church, and it's such a joy to get to come on this day and, and recognize our graduates. And uh, I, I've got to know some of you guys in a small part, in, uh, especially the guys going through uh, Better Man and getting to see, uh, spend some time with each and every one of you, and we are super thankful uh, for each and every one of you guys. I do want to just uh, say a quick word um, as we prepare to open up God's Word uh, today, um, just to you guys as graduates. First, I would just say, enjoy this moment. It is right and good because it is a great accomplishment. Today is likely the beginning of high moments in your life because life only speeds up from this place. Can I get an amen from everybody else in the room? Your joints will start hurting and all kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, anyway. Graduating high school usually gives you a way, gives way to other celebrations in your life, like graduating from college, uh, landing your first full-time job, moving out on your own, uh, walking down an aisle to prepare to marry your spouse, and likely even one day soon welcoming a child into your home. Uh, these are all right and good moments of celebration that you probably have on the horizon, and I just want you to know that we pray these things for you. However, what I would caution you against today is misplacing the joy and pursuit of these moments as the purpose of your existence and fulfillment. If you always live for the next big step in life, eventually you run out of steps, which can mean that your life begins to lose purpose and that you miss the real joy and meaning that is found in each moment because you're always looking to the next steps. Graduates, God has a great plan for your future. But God also has a great plan for your present. The greatest joy and purpose of your life will not be found in a degree, a degree, a career, a paycheck, a spouse, or even children. These are all incredible gifts from God, but they fall short of what God himself intends to be in your life. Graduates, I would implore you, fall passionately in love with Jesus. If you do, your life may not always be filled with the most money, the most esteem, or even the most safety and security. But if you have Jesus, your life will always be full. And the blessings you receive from Him will be sweeter and stewarded better. Live not for the next day that you walk down an aisle or into a room or onto a stage and everyone shouts your name in a kingdom that's made by you. But live for the day when you walk into the kingdom made by God. And the only name that is shouted is Jesus. And the sound that you hear is, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is a life well lived and a future worth looking forward to because it is what you were created for. The devil will do all that he can to distract you from loving God. And the best advice I can give you today is to stay close to Jesus and stay clean before Him. And if you do that, the enemy cannot defeat God's purpose for your life. But my sincere congratulations goes out for you all. And our prayer is that you would be world changers for the kingdom of Jesus. Can we give them one more big hand? 
That being said, we're going to finish this morning a series we've been walking through, uh, 12 weeks here that we've been walking through about how to raise up the next generation with a biblical worldview. And it's the 12 essential conversation that every parent needs uh, to have. If you're just joining us today, I encourage you, you can go online and listen to these, go to our website. Uh, But we're going to pick up where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world. And then we're going to look at our final conversation here today. So Genesis Genesis 3, beginning in verse 11, verse 10, it says, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, speaking of Adam, and I was afraid of you because I was naked and I hid myself, which is a good reason for anybody to hide themselves. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent, speaking of Satan, deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and on the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then I encourage you this morning, underline verse 15. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then we're going to skip through verses 16 through 19. We talked about these last week. Remember, this is the fall of man. Sin has entered the world. And then verses 16 through 19, God gives the consequences of sin towards man. But pick back up in verse 20. It says, Then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for his wife, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. We'll pause there. The rest of the passage right after this is then God sends them outside of the Garden of Eden. It's Again, this is one of the saddest places in Scripture. Man, for the first time in history, is separated from the presence of God. But what you may not notice here is that in these verses is, is hidden, not, not necessarily hidden, but it's hard to kind of mine at first glance, is the great promise and hope of redemption that would be one day on the horizon for God's people. In the middle of this terrible, tragic story where God's people fall, sin enters the world, they're separated from God, there's a promise of a coming day of redemption. And this is absolutely the last conversation, probably the most important conversation uh, that you can have with your children. But today, conversation number 12 is this, is that the essential conversation that we find from Genesis chapter 3 is that God loves humanity. And provides reconciliation between God and man through Jesus. Here in Genesis 3, we see two verses in this passage that point us to God's love for humanity and his desire to reconcile him, reconcile us back to himself one day in Jesus. The first comes from Genesis 3:15, where he looks at Satan and he's talking about Eve, and he says, I will put enmity, which is conflict or battle, between the woman. And you, between your seed and her seed, you shall bruise him. You shall bruise him on the head, but he will bruise you on the heel. And then also in Genesis three twenty one, where God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and He clothed their nakedness. Where it says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So before we really jump into this passage here today, let me, let me explain to you how we see Jesus here in the middle of this terrible, tragic moment. In redemptive history. First, we see it in Genesis 3.15, being that this is the first promise, the first prophecy of Jesus in the Bible. Here in this passage, we see God speaking of a day when he would bring enmity, 
Again, that word means hostility or conflict between Satan, who is the author of sin, and the seed of the woman. In this moment of hostility or battle, we might say, the scripture says that the heel of the seed of woman would crush the head of Satan. So he's talking about Satan would be defeated by the seed of the heel of woman. But it says that Satan would bruise or injure the heel of those of him who is crushing the head of Satan. The imagery here is that someone is killing a snake by stamping on its head, but then the snake injures the person just before its death. Now what's interesting here to notice is the terminology of seed of woman. Nowhere else in the Bible is the term seed of woman used. Throughout biblical history, the lineages of of peoples were traced through the fathers, through the seed of man. But in fact, as we talked about last week, it's one of the main reasons why we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam, from ultimately from Adam. In Romans chapter 5, it says that death came through Adam, and so death spread to all men. You know why we're all sinful here today? It's because our greatest grandfather is Adam. But the Bible makes a statement here about the seed of woman, that God was going to do something supernatural. He, he was some way going to bring about a human in the form of of man, but without using the seed of man. And we know on this side of redemptive history, what he's talking about is a virgin birth. He's talking about the day when Jesus would step on the scene. And when Jesus would step on the scene, he would be the one. This seed of woman would crush the head of Satan, but it would come at a cost to himself. It would bruise himself. In theological terms, this is called the proto-evangelion. That's a $10 word that you can totally forget. You'll probably never use that again. But it's the first picture of Jesus. And then also we see in verse 21, we see another picture of God's love and his desire to reconcile man to himself. In that as Adam and Eve are about to be separated from God, God still steps down into the middle of their situation and he clothes their shame with garments of skin. In fact, this is the first place in Scripture where death has taken place. Sin entered the world and now death has taken place. Something had to die in order for Adam and Eve's shame to be clothed. Again, it's another picture that's going to reference to them that in order for shame to be forever covered, to be forever forgiven, is that something would have to die. Something would have to give its blood. So as you can see, right here at the beginning of time, God's plan for humanity was always to reconcile man unto himself, ultimately through Jesus. This is a paramount truth to growing up with a biblical worldview, to having a Christian understanding. Without Christ, there is no Christian. And ultimately, here at the beginning of Scripture, we see the references to Jesus. Now, what we've been doing in this series, in order to be able to explain these central, essential conversations, is we've been answering three questions that help us do that. So we're going to do that again, finally, this morning. Question number one is, where do we see in the Scriptures... That God loves humanity and has provided a path to reconciliation. That word reconcile means to bring back together between God and man through Jesus. As we talked about last week, sin fractured the relationship between God and man in in the beginning. And put humanity at odds with a holy God. However, here in Genesis 3 and throughout the rest of the Bible, it has always been in the heart and plan of God to fix that brokenness, to bring us back unto himself. So let me give you five ways according to Scripture that we see God's love for humanity and his desire to reconcile us to himself 
according to Scripture. First, we see God's love and desire to reconcile humanity to himself through the timing of his promise. Here in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as sin entered the world, God gives this promise. Now, all of us have been in situations where somebody has injured us, somebody has hurt us, somebody has rebelled against us. And in the moment, we may not always feel like forgiving them, but if we follow Christ, this is what God's called us to do. But it's difficult. Here in this situation, we see God not waiting around, not pausing to leave man hanging out to dry in the middle of his brokenness. But we see Jesus, we see God stepping in right in the middle of this situation and giving a promise that one day I will bring you back into myself. It is as if God was saying to Satan in this moment, it may hurt me, but one day I will defeat you and I will bring these people back. We in human flesh can understand how it can be hard for us to forgive. But right here in this moment, God steps in and says, I will one day bring them back into himself. Isn't it good today to know that from the beginning of sin entering the world, it was always on God's mind to restore us into relationship with him. The second way we see this in Scripture, God's desire to reconcile us to himself, is the temperance of his punishment. The word temperance means patience. Here in Genesis chapter 3 and throughout the rest of Scripture, we see God being overly patient and gracious with humanity. Now there are moments, absolutely, where we see the wrath of God being poured out on the earth and God is able to do this and still be just, still be holy, still be loving because He's God. We see Him in one moment destroy the entire earth one time with a great flood to save one family, the family of Noah. We see God ultimately, he destroyed two cities in Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sinfulness of the people. Now, some people can look at these passages wrongly and say, look, the God of the Bible is an angry and hateful God. When in all honesty, a true look at the scriptures show that of the few times that we see God's wrath being justly poured out on his people, we also see almost innumerable moments when God gave great grace to his people, as we see here in Genesis 3. God could have dealt so much harsh, so much more harshly with Adam and Eve, but he was abundantly gracious, clothing them with their clothing them in the midst of their shame. In the Old Testament, the word that we have for God's continued graciousness is his loving kindness. Lamentations chapter 3 is a book. The word lamentations means to lament. It means to cry, to weep. It is a book of Jeremiah speaking about the judgment of God coming on the people of God rightly because of their continued sinfulness. But right in the middle of them enduring the judgment of God, there's a promise of God's mercy. It says in Lamentations chapter 3 verse 21, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses, Indeed, never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your, is your faithfulness. Some of you need to know today that while God is just and will punish sin, He is also loving and patient, and that every morning you wake up is an invitation by God to repent and experience His grace. In the New Testament, we see God's mercy over and over again also. In 2 Peter, chapter two, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter speaks about the patience and mercy of God on us as people saying, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Now again, it shouldn't surprise us here today that, that Peter is the one writing about the patience of the Lord and his desire for us to come to repentance because Peter experienced the grace of God in the New Testament in blatant, beautiful ways, maybe more so than anyone else. The Bible says in John chapter 21 that as Peter has denied Christ at his crucifixions three different times, he said, I do not know the man. After Jesus raises from the dead, Peter has a few interactions with him, but you can still see that Peter is wrestling with the guilt of his mistakes and his rejection of Jesus. And the Bible says in John 21 that Peter is going back to fishing. Basically, he's leaving the ministry. He was a fisherman when Jesus called him. He's now messed up and denied Jesus. He cannot forgive himself. And so now he gets to John 21, and he's going back to fishing. And some of the disciples go with him because people, bad decisions always draw a crowd. And that's a good thing to know when you leave to go to college. But here today, the Bible says they go out, they fish all night, and they catch nothing. And one of the most beautiful pictures in the New Testament in John 21... In the middle of Peter's rebellion against God, the Bible says in John 21 verse 4, as the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. In the middle of Peter running away from God, we see Jesus running to Peter. If there's anything that we see from God over and over again in the Bible, it is that humanity is more sinful and broken than we could have imagined, but that God is more gracious and merciful than we've ever deserved. Another reason, thirdly, we see God's desire and love, love and desire for reconciliation with humanity is the teaching of his prophets. You know, Genesis chapter 3 was not the only place that God spoke about one day bringing about a Savior. In fact, all of the Old Testament shows us over and over and over again the prophets saying, I love you, I'm coming to get you, I love you, I'm coming to get you. And Isaiah Chapter 7, we see the prophecy hundreds of years before Christ of a virgin birth. It says in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's, God with us. Hundreds of years before Christ, God was saying, I'm going to send a Savior. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, I won't read it all, but the prophet Daniel spoke of a day when God would raise up a king whose kingdom would have no end. And then also Ezekiel chapter 36 prophesies of a day when Jesus, when a Savior would come about who would cleanse his people of their sins. Ezekiel 36 verse 25 says this, Then I... We'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll be careful to observe my ordinances and my commands. It's a beautiful picture there that, that God is going to do what He's going to do something one day that not only washes us on the outside, but does a brand new work on the inside. There are literally hundreds of prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that point to the day that God would send a Savior to the world. And they are meant to encourage us to let us know that God loves humanity. Just this past year, I took my little boy uh, deer hunting, and we were uh, hunting in the evening. The sun had gone down, and i got to say that correctly. We were not hunting in the evening. Uh, we were hunting in the afternoon, and it became evening on us. Now, some of y'all hunt in the evening, and y'all are called outlaws. But anyway, we were hunting in the afternoon, and it, it, it got dark on us. And so 
uh, as it was getting dark, I needed to go about 100 yards away and check on something. And he's an eight-year-old little boy, and you know, the dark in the woods, and your dad not being with you is kind of scary. And I said, buddy, you stay right here at the stand. I'm going to come right back and get you. But just to let you know where you can see where I am the whole time, I'm going to keep my flashlight on so you know that I am not far away. And that's the same picture that we see with these prophets over and over again in the Old Testament. It's God's way of shining a flashlight in the dark. It's God's way of saying to the world, I'm not far away and one day I'm coming back to get you. For hundreds of years, God was saying to the world, I'm coming for you. Fourthly, we see God's love and desire for reconciliation with humanity and the terribleness of his plan, according to scriptures. As we see in Genesis 3, God's plan was always to crush Satan. But we also see that this defeat of sin and darkness would come at a cost to God. In Genesis 3.15, it speaks of how the seed of woman, which is Jesus, would crush Satan's head, but that Satan would bruise his heel, which is referencing the pain and sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross. All throughout Scripture, we see God gave his people examples and reminders, even like the clothing their shame and sinfulness with skins there in the garden through the sacrificial system that he instituted with the giving of, of the blood of goats and lambs to not necessarily forgive their sin forever, but just to forgive it for a moment. It was all intended to point them to the fact that in order for you to be forgiven is that death must take place and blood must be shed. The highest consequence that man can ever give is capital punishment. And God's holiness, God's holiness, God's purpose demanded capital punishment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We talked about the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Christ would even be born. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see that it was always in God's plan to send Jesus to be our sacrifice to be in order that we could be brought back into a relationship with him. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. I want you to hear this church and think about the cross. This is hundreds of years before Christ, it says. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging or by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity or the sin of us all to fall on him. Church, we see that the plan of God to give Jesus his son was throughout redemptive history. We see it in Genesis 3 all the way back to Adam and Eve being clothed with the skins of this dead animal. And ultimately through the promise that God would crush the head of Satan but it would bruise his heel. We see it hundreds of years later here in Isaiah 53 as Isaiah describes a crucifixion, the crucifixion of, crucifixion of Jesus almost to a T. We see it also throughout the Old Testament in Abraham going to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, but ultimately God provided a lamb. We see it in the Psalms. And then 700 years after Isaiah, we see the sinless Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. 
He is sweating blood as he prays. The sweating of blood is a documented medical event that comes from extreme stress. He's sweating blood because he knows what's ahead of him. He knows the mocking is ahead of him. He knows the scourging that would rip the flesh from his body is ahead of him. He knows the crown of thorns, the hateful slurs are ahead of him. Ultimately, he knew the heavy cross was before him. The naked shame was before him. The piercing nails, the struggle to breathe was before him. But he also knew that the worst was ahead of him was when God would lay the sin of the world upon him and the wrath of God would be satisfied on himself. Literally, Jesus would take hell's fury for all sinful man. Jesus knew that was ahead of him. And Jesus also knew that when he had drank down the cup of the wrath of God, that he would bow his head and die. This was what Jesus was aware of in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because this was always in the plan of God. And this terrible plan that had a purpose of redeeming man to himself. Jesus so much so knew what was ahead of him that he prayed in Luke 22 verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But praise God that our Savior's prayer did not end there. But he continued with, yet not my will, but yours be done. Church family, if we ever needed to know or to see the love of God and his desire desire for a relationship with us we need only go to the cross as the old hymn says how great the father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure Friends, here this morning, if you've never received the love and forgiveness of Jesus and let his blood wash you clean today and you can even this morning Parents, of all the lessons we could teach our children today, this is by far the greatest lesson, is to teach them that they have a Savior who loves them. Several years ago, when Kimberly and I were living in northwest Alabama, I was pastoring Arley First Baptist Church there. and uh, We had just had Jackson, our newborn, and, and uh, we knew that Jackson couldn't come to the service that morning, and, and so uh, that next morning, and so we were going to, to come that night, that Saturday night, and watch their dress rehearsal. And Ella was with us, who was about three years old. And so we're watching the choir sing. We're in this empty sanctuary by ourselves. And what we were not aware of was that uh, part of the choir presentation was a video package uh, that was showed some clips from the Passion of the Christ. And as we're watching this video package and they showed some depictions of the gruesomeness of the sacrifice of Jesus, I immediately thought about my three-year-old little girl. She doesn't need to see this. But before I could get out of my pew and kind of wrangle her to myself is that she caught a glimpse of it. And this little tiny innocent face went, went blank and she looked at me and she said, Daddy, why are they hurting Jesus? And I reached down and I turned her back to the screen where she was looking at me straight on the face and I was able to look at my innocent little girl's face and the only thing I could come up with in that moment was to say, Baby, Jesus hurt on the outside so you would never have to hurt on the inside. Church family, friends that are here this morning, this is the greatest of the gospel story is that God's love was always planned. His sacrifice was always planned to give his only son for us and it was a price that he paid. And it's available today. It shows us God's love for his people. If you don't know that today, if you don't know that grace and that mercy, I invite you to come today. Jesus is calling. Come. And then finally, we see God's love and desire 
for reconciliation with humanity in the scriptures from the testimony of his preachers. While Jesus was being on the cross is, is absolutely the greatest example of God's love for humanity. We also see in the reality that the most immediate thing that Jesus did right after he rose from the grave was to begin to to commission his disciples to go out and share the love of Jesus with others. In fact, the last words that Jesus said on this earth before he ascended to the Father is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, which means to tell of Jesus both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. Within days of his resurrection, we see Jesus sending out his disciples to the world to tell others of his love. And he's still doing that today. Every time a young man is called to preach, every time one of you puts your yes on the table to go to the nations to tell those who've never heard the name of Jesus about Jesus, and every time God brings a person to your heart and mind, whether it be in your neighborhood or in the classroom next to you that does not know Jesus, it is all part of God's design to let the world know that he loves them. So church, of all the essential conversations we've looked at during this series and how they're backed up in Scripture, this one's probably the easiest because the entirety of the Scriptures is a love letter to the world to say, I love you. And parents, this is why probably the greatest song that we can teach our children to sing is this. Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So question number one is that we see God's desire to love and reconcile humanity through Jesus all over Scripture. Question number two is, where do we see in the world today that God loves humanity and provided a path of reconciliation between God and man through Jesus? Basically, where do we see God's love for the world in the world around us? Where can we see that working around us? Let me give you a few ways I believe we can see that today. First, I believe that you can see God's love for humanity Because we desire a rescuer. You know, the Bible says in Acts 17 that God is not far from each of us. That God is working and moving in the hearts and lives of people that we might seek him. And I believe one of the greatest ways we see that in humanity is for centuries, our fascination has been on Christ-like heroes in literature, music, and film. We are enamored as a people with a hero. A person who is greater and stronger than humanity. Who is able to defeat a villain that humanity has been unable to defeat. And our fascination for that is greater even today. Do you know that one of the most successful franchises in the movie industry right now are those that deal with supernatural heroes and what we would say, uh, that we would say those in those realms. A recent article in 2019, U.S. box office revenue of superhero movies reached 3.19 billion U.S. dollars. And the the article would ultimately say that it did particularly well among all ages. So it's not just kids are watching this. The article went on to say that as more superheroes are making the jump to the silver screen than ever before, the cinematic landscape will likely be dominated by invincible heroes and heroines for years to come. Let me say this. I love a good superhero movie as much as anybody. Captain America, I think, is awesome. And I hope they bring him back from the dead. Okay, like I'm a big fan. But church family, I think we love these type of stories. 
Because in some way, God has written it in our heart that we desire a hero. We desire a savior. And in some way, we know that this world around us is broken and we can't find the fix to what it is all around us. Every time we look right to left, nobody else has the answers, but we looking above. We're looking for somebody who's like us, who's not like us. We see somebody who cares, but is empowered, who is different, who's different than us, who is able to step in and fix the broken. And the reality is, is I believe God has put that in our hearts to cause us to look for Jesus, to look for a Savior. Secondly, I believe we can see God's love for humanity can be seen in that we still see God drawing people to himself. As he has for 2,000 years, the Christian faith is still a growing faith because God is still drawing people to himself. The Bible makes it clear in John 6, that no one comes to Jesus unless the Spirit of God draws him. But we see God doing that every day. We see God th- doing that through people hearing the gospel, people picking up God's word. But we're also seeing it in supernatural ways. One phenomenon that is happening right now in the Muslim world, especially in those areas that are virtually close to the gospel, is that we're seeing Muslim people are having visions and dreams of Jesus and they're beginning to believe and follow him. One study showed that today, now this is incredible, that almost one quarter of Muslims who are converting to Christianity have started that journey because of a vision or a dream of Jesus. The Gospel Coalition wrote an article in May of 2018 that documented some of these stories. I want to share one to you today. One story told of a Persian migrant who arrived at a refugee center about 6 a.m., visibly upset. He told his story to a Persian pastor. He said during the night, he saw someone dressed in white raise his hand and say, stand up and follow me. The Persian man said, who are you? The man in white replied, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way to heaven. No one can go to the Father except through me. He began to ask the Persian pastor, who is he? What am I going to do? Why did he ask me to follow him? How shall I go? Tell me. And in response, the Persian pastor held out in his Bible and asked, have you seen this before? No, he replied. Do you know what it is? No, he said. The Persian pastor then opened up to the book of Revelations. This is so great. He's, and it, where he quoted to the man, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And the man started crying and said, how can I accept him? How can I follow him? So the pastor led him in a prayer and peace came over him. The pastor then gave the man a Bible and told him to hide it since the Muslims in the camp may cause him trouble. And I love this part. But the man replied, the Jesus that I met today, he's more powerful than the Muslims in the camp. He left and a few hours later, the man returned with 10 other Persians who said, these men want a Bible also because they too have now trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. Church family, from every child that gives their life to Jesus at Vacation Bible School, to every neighbor in whom Jesus redeems, to every person that lives in your dorm that you share Jesus with, to every Muslim that comes to know Jesus in persecuted areas, it reminds us over and over again that our God is not dead. He is alive and he is working and moving in the hearts and lives of his people. I would say to this here today, if God's not working in and through and working in your life, maybe this can press us today say, oh God, I want you to move in my life. 
But thirdly, God's love for humanity can be seen that in, in that we still see God sending people to those who don't know him. So we see God at work around us in our desire for a rescuer and the fact that he's drawing people to himself, but also in that he is sending Christians to those who do not know him. You know, I love in the book of Acts where it talks about how God did these things. I love the story of Ananias. He's just hanging out and Jesus shows up to him and tells him about Saul of Tarsus who's at the street called straight to go and share the gospel with him. He shows up there and there's Saul and he leads Saul to Jesus who ultimately becomes one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. We see God moving and working. And I want to say this to you this morning, church. I've seen God do this in my own life. In fact, I would say to you this morning that, that, that Kimberly and I, my family and I, we are here this morning in Morris, Alabama because God spoke in our hearts and gave us words from Scripture and visions and dreams to say, come, and we're believing for a movement of God here in this community. But one of my favorite stories to tell is the story of my friend Daniel Aran. Daniel is one of our life group leaders here. He is a longtime member here at Enon Baptist Church. He grew up as a little kid here. When I knew Daniel when he was in ninth grade. I was a senior in high school. He was a ninth grader. And I remember he started linebacker for us as a ninth grader. He was tough as a corn cob. But he loved Jesus. In ninth grade, he had a dream. He had a dream one night. He was loving Jesus. And in the dream, he was in a village. He said he was walking around this village. It was thatch-roofed villages and huts. He could tell that he was in a foreign nation. He didn't know where he was. He saw no people. But as he walked through this village, he just knew in his heart that it was a village where people had never heard of Jesus. He woke up from the dream, and he felt like God was calling him at some point in his life to go to the nations to tell people about Jesus. He started telling people at church that. He shared that at Enon Baptist Church as a ninth grader, that at some point in time that God was going to call him to go to the nations. He finishes Mormon Jordan High School. He goes to UNA, graduates from UNA, and he ends up signing up with the International Mission Board to do two years as a journeyman, which is a short-term missions uh, commitment to go to the nations to tell other people about Jesus. So he ends up committing there, and because he had experience in backpacking, because he and his dad did a lot of backpacking in that, that they sent him to southern China, which was one of the most persecuted places for Christians in the nation of China. And they had some mountainous regions there where they knew that there were people that lived in these mountains that were so cut off from the world that they were very likely had never heard the name of Jesus. Well, Daniel commits to go. He goes to this, he goes to China, he spends a few months there learning the language, and finally he gets the language down enough to where he can communicate. He gets on a train, takes the train to the very last train stop uh, in the middle of nowhere, gets out, and is at the base of this giant mountain and starts a trek up this mountain. Days making his way up this mountain to try to go just find people who live there. He's camping along the way. Finally, a few days after being in the mountain, he comes upon some people. And they welcome him. They take him into, his, into their village. He goes into the village and he meets the village elders and he starts sharing the gospel with these people and they are very intrigued and they invite him to come back the next day. This village would ultimately end up being the hub from where they would send out many people in that community among those mountains to hear about Jesus. It was an incredible success story. He said as he's leaving the village that first night, and he's so excited. I mean, God has led him to these people. He's got favor. I mean, it's, what you, it's New Testament Christianity. And as he's leaving the village, the village entrance point was like a big teardrop. He went in one way, but he was exiting, leaving another way. And it was just about dark. And he said, as he was about to leave the village, the Holy Spirit spoke in his heart and said, Daniel, turn around. 
Now, when he turned around and he saw the village from this angle, suddenly he knew where he was. It was the exact same village he had seen in his dream as a ninth grade kid. That a decade before this, God found a young man in in Morris, Alabama, who said, here's my life because God loved those people in those mountainous regions because he wanted to send them the gospel. Church family today, God is still working. God is still moving. God is still drawing. God is still sending. If we open our eyes to it today, we see him at work all over the world. Let's give the Lord a big hand here today that he's working. Man, I preach myself sweaty and happy up here, man. But lastly, this morning, and I would say this to all of us, church family, God loves it when people put their yes on the table. Maybe today you'll put your yes on the table. Say, God, send me whatever that looks like. But lastly today, why is it important to teach our children that God loves humanity and provides reconciliation between God and man through his son Jesus? Let me give you three quick reasons. First, we need to teach this truth to our children that they may be saved. Parents, as we said last week, the greatest job you have as a parent is not only to help your children prepare for the future in this life, but also to help them prepare for eternal life. Some simple truths that help spur us on to urgency in this task is there is such a thing as an eternity for all people. Everybody doesn't go to heaven. Jesus is the only difference. Parents, I would say to you today, if you've never had that conversation with your of-age kid, with your teenage child, and just looked at them eyeball to eyeball and asked them the question, do you believe in Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? You need to do that today. Secondly, parents, we need to have this conversation with our kids so that they can be satisfied. There's so many good things, I believe, ahead for these seniors here today. But as we said, even in that introduction statement to them, the only thing that will truly make you full in this life is Jesus. It doesn't matter how great of an athlete you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much money you, how you have. All of those things, story after story after story, a famous person and rich person after person after person who ends this life miserable and broken shows us over and over and over again that without Jesus, we're empty. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But finally, parents, we must teach our children that God loves humanity and desires to reconcile them to himself so that they can be sent. So that we can send our kids. Because if we believe this truth, then that's where naturally it should lead to. John said in in 3 John verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in truth. As we see from this text, John speaks of the greatest desire for his disciples is that they would walk in truth, which means that their lives are being lived for the glory of God according to his truth. Parents, at some point, we have to ask ourselves, which is what is the greatest greatest desire for our children in this life? Is our desire that they do well according to the world's standard? Or is our desire that they give glory to the one true God? In many ways, this is the reality of the test of this entire series, which has been to call us as parents to intentionally raise our children with a biblical worldview. If you say yes and amen to the truths that we've discussed in this series concerning God's design for sexuality, for work, 
for gender and other truths that we've discussed. If you said amen to these things and you're beginning to raise your children with these truths, then praise God for that. I believe that you will be blessed and your children will benefit from it. Let me say this this morning. You don't necessarily have to love God to desire to raise your children this way. You can just be a moral person, a conservative person or a traditional person who wants to raise your children with these values. And listen to me this morning. There's nothing wrong with that on a moral basis. However, for us as Christians, our intentions in raising our children with a biblical worldview should not be that we raise moral, good children, but that we raise children to honor and serve the one true God. And part of living and loving and serving the one true God is to give your life as a full surrender to him. Ultimately, to go out in everything that you do in life and point other people to Jesus to live your life sent in this world. So parents, here's my question today. Are you willing to send your kids? Now this may not mean that all of them will give their lives to serve Jesus among the nations in dangerous places. It may not mean that they forego nice incomes and a nice life here at home. Some people serve the purposes of God that way right here at home. However, for some, that is exactly what living sent means. To lose so Christ may gain is the call for all Christians. It's just more visible for some than it is for others. Parents, if this is God's will for them, to give up comfort, safety, security for the sake of Jesus, would we celebrate any less? If so, then parents, we may have to check our hearts to see if we desire to raise children with a biblical worldview that has more to do with serving and pleasing earthly mothers and fathers here today, or are we doing it to serve and please our heavenly Father? Because if we're raising our kids with a biblical worldview just to benefit ourselves, then we want the Bible, we want the truth of the Bible, but we don't want the God of the Bible. However, if you are a parent or a grandparent, or a potential parent one day here today, and you do know what the purpose of Jesus is, and you do know the call to give everything in your life, including your children, for the purpose and glory of Jesus, you know that it's not easy. However, you joyfully do it because in your experience, God is real, His plan is trustworthy, His Spirit is powerful, and His glory is worth it. At some point today, we've got to ask ourselves, what is the main purpose of our lives? If you believe that Jesus is the Savior today, then we have to live that way. And I know no greater example in this life of things that we love more than the way that we love our children. But the reality is, is do we love them enough to love God more? Do we love them enough to send them for the glory of God? This is a good gauge moment in our own hearts and lives. As I was praying and how to conclude this service this last week, I felt like the Lord reminded me of something in our one-year Bible reading that we've been reading in recent weeks. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to get in that journey with us. But in recent weeks, we've been reading about Hannah. We read about Prophet Samuel and 
where Samuel started was Hannah was a lady who was barren and she could not have any children. She went to the temple of God. And she went to the temple of God and she wept and called out to God and said, Oh God, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you all the days of her life. And God blessed her. God gave her Samuel. She kept him at home until she had weaned him. But then finally at the last moment as she had weaned him, she brought him back to the temple to ultimately serve the Lord all the days of his life as a servant of God. She would come every year, the Bible says, and bring him a new tunic and bring him a new robe. But Samuel grew up having served the Lord and God used him in mighty, powerful ways. But it started with one lady who said, Jesus, you're worth it. God, you're worth it. Here's my child. Church family and friends here today, is Jesus worth it? And parents, I can't imagine any better way to end this series as we've been trying to call ourselves up as parents and to say mamas and daddies and grandparents here today and even men and women who desire to have children one day, would you be willing this morning to come and symbolically say, here's my children. Here they are. God, I give you, and in many ways what you're doing, you're saying, God, here's all of me. Here's all of me. Every aspect, because Jesus, you're worth it. You're worth it. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Zach, I could never do that. I can never give my kids to the Lord, give control. Maybe it's because you just don't really know Jesus. I wouldn't expect you to be able to surrender to the Lord. You're something that you love so much for a God in whom you do not know. Maybe today you need to call out to Jesus and say, God, I want to know you like this. We just talked about his sacrifice, his love. He's been working for thousands of years to bring you into a real vibrant relationship with him. That your heart would be full, that you may know him. Today you can give your lives to Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to do this. I know it's graduation Sunday and it's real easy to kind of get caught up in the pomp and circumstance of all that. We can just high five each other and have church. Let me say something to you this morning, guys. Before I am anything else, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus and God's called me to be a prophet in these moments. And the best thing that I can say to you beautiful, lovely people is to say love Jesus because he's worth it. Chase and pursue him because he's good. Serve him because it'll be worth it. And one day you'll stand before him and he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servants. So this morning, as we come in just a fresh and anew, would you surrender your lives to Jesus today? If you believe he's alive, he's worth it. So I'm asking you to stand today. Brother Ken's going to come in a few moments. Before he does that, can we just have an old-fashioned altar call? If there's any mamas and daddies this morning who say, I want to come and I want to lay my kids before the Lord afresh and anew, my grandkids before the Lord afresh and anew, I want to invite you to come. Right now, let's just come and have a time like Hannah where we just kneel before the Lord and we just give our kids back to the Lord afresh and anew. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Zach, man, I love Jesus, but I need to surrender my life afresh and anew because he's worth it. And would you come? And just come and kneel and have, a, have just a moment with Jesus today. Ask Him to stir your hearts afresh and anew. Seniors, guys, hey, man, this morning, if you just want to come and you guys want to come and just kneel and say, Jesus, here's my life, my future, everything. Guys, you feel free to kneel right there where you are, man, and call out to the Lord Jesus. If God's calling you to move, you feel free to come now as we sing.